Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12. As you're turning to Mark 12, there was a lot of discussion with our staff this week about whether I should jump back into Mark or just continue on talking about the Lord and the pandemic and the trial that we're going through. And it was clear the more I looked at the passage before us in Mark that the issues that Mark raises in the ministry of Jesus on the Temple Mount are, are so perfectly timed for what we're dealing with individually and culturally, that it would be wise just to jump back into Mark and let God's providence order our study. Mark chapter 12, let me read these verses for us, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him, that is Jesus, in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, Jesus, Knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. I have yet to meet anyone in my life or in my lifetime who loves to pay taxes. Never one. Kim and I just filed our taxes for this year before we understood that we have a three-month extension in this year. But anyway, they are in the mail, and it was shocking to do the math and to realize, have you thought about this, that for most of us, we work from January to March just to pay our taxes. For some, they work well into April, for others, even longer. And that's how much of our year, by percentage, we work in order to pay our taxes. It's pretty humbling. It's important to remember, though, that we are not the first generation to dislike taxation. Taxes are a part of our lives. They're also a part of our history. The dislike of taxes is a part of our history. Non-representative taxation was at the heart of the American Revolution. Taxes are paid at the local level, the state level, the federal level. Taxation works its way all the way down to our children. Think of this. Every toy they purchase, or maybe we should say that we purchase for them, are purchased subject to taxation. And taxation was a major concern in the first century. In fact, taxes and tax collectors were the object of such derision in the New Testament and during the time of Jesus that to study the New Testament is to become familiar with taxation, extortion, and the abuse of the tax system. The tax collectors in that day were given a a stated tax that they had, 
but also anything that they wanted to, to add to that, whatever percentage they wanted to add to that, they were allowed to do by the Roman government, and that's how they made their living, and that's how they extorted the people. Taxes were hated. Tax collectors were hated. It should be no surprise that the attackers then of the Lord Jesus in this last week of his life choose taxation as a way to reveal his true motives, his true character, and his true ministry. During these final days of Jesus' earthly life, the Temple Mount is the context of his days. That's where he spends his days. It was the large stone platform on which the temple stood. We've covered this before, but remember that during uh, uh, the normal flow of the year, it's estimated that 100,000 people lived in and around Jerusalem, and the population during the Passover week would swell to over 3 million people with the Temple Mount literally swelling with tens of thousands, upward of 100,000 people crowded together to offer their sacrifice for the Passover. As this Nazarene who was very famous, comes from the north, down through the Jordan Valley, down through the, to, by the Dead Sea, up to Jerusalem. He is the talk of the town. Everyone knew who he was, had heard of him. This is the man from Galilee. Think of this. Think of the pointing. Think of the, the, the taps on the children's shoulders and the, the grabbing someone to come and see, looking across the Temple Mountain saying, there's the one who walked on water. There's the one who calmed a storm. There's the one who gave the blind their sight. There's the one who allowed deaf to hear. There's the one who cast out demons, who fed thousands. There's the one who straightened deformed limbs. There's the one who cured the worst bane of their existence, lepers and leprosy. There's the one who taught with unparalleled authority and forgave sin. And just as he had done with Lazarus just a few months earlier than this moment, there is the one who could raise the dead. You can be sure that Jesus was the main attraction on the Temple Mount during that busy week of Passover in Jerusalem. But you can also bet that that attraction that was given him created a jealousy and a disdain in the Jewish leaders because he was stealing their glory. Now, as we learned in our last study of Mark, it was primarily the members of a group, a representative group called the Sanhedrin who were trying to put Jesus down. Now, the Sanhedrin was made of a group of people from Sadducees, from the elders, and from the Pharisees that were kind of warring parties at the time. But they got together, uh, especially during the Passover, to make uh, pronouncements for the, the country. They were largely a, 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 a governmental function with some religious overtones. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes worked together, but in this, they worked together not just for the governance of the people of Israel. They actually worked together to come against Jesus. And beginning in chapter 11, verse 27, Mark lays out a catalog through the end of chapter 12 of seven conflict stories between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the temple. This is the third of those seven conflicts. 
Now, I wanna, I wanna help you as we're moving through this in the way to think about this passage. It's really a way to think of all the gospel passages. You have to approach this from two levels. The first, in considering the passage, is what is Mark doing to tell us what he wants to tell us about Jesus? And in this, this series of conflicts, He's showing the murderous plot of the Jewish leaders, but he's also showing us the divine wisdom, the the ingenious nature of who Jesus was and how he thought that he had divine wisdom that that superintended any earthly wisdom. But we also listen not only to what Mark is doing about what Jesus is teaching, but to what Jesus is teaching himself so that we can apply those principles and not make the mistakes that the people he was confronting is making. So you hear those two levels? We're thinking about what Mark is doing with this scene, which is important. He's proving that Jesus is divine. He's God. His wisdom is out of this world, God in flesh. But he's also using what Jesus taught to teach you and me. At the heart of this conflict is the issue of image and ownership. We'll see that as we walk through. Image and ownership. So as we work through these verses, we will discover two surprising implications of image and ownership. Two surprising implications of image and ownership. Yes, this passage involves our thought, thinking about taxes and taxation, but this passage is far broader than just taxes. It's about our very lives. Two surprising implications of image and ownership. The first is in verses 13 to 16, and it's, it's, it's the longest point. Just, just full disclosure, this will take us a little longer to work through than second. The image on a coin and civic duties. The image on a coin and civic duties. Look at verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. There's a lot going on in the context here. Who is they? It's the Sanhedrin in general. Now they they have the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that made up the Sanhedrin. And the elders that pulled uh, a part of that, that group as well. But now that group, the smaller group, is collecting uh, different connections between different factions to go after Jesus. They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians in order to trap him. They're trying to trap him publicly. Remember, there are thousands, countless people who are hearing all of these interactions. They want to discredit Jesus. In order to do this, they were actually willing to solicit enemies who didn't like each other to work together for their conspiracy. Think about the lineup. Look at your Bibles for a minute. In chapter 11, verse 27, you have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. That's the Sanhedrin. In chapter 12, verse 13, you have the Pharisees. Also in 13, you have the Herodians. In verse 18, you have the Sadducees. In verse 28, the scribes again. And then in verse 32, an individual scribe. This is everybody versus Jesus. I think it's fair to say that all who were in official leadership at this point were coming against Jesus. As we'll see in just a few weeks, there was one scribe who was closer to the kingdom than the rest because he was asking out of sincerity and not asking out of hypocrisy about the ways of Jesus. Here, the Pharisees join up with a group called the Herodians. 
This is an interesting mix. The Herodians were an interesting introduction into these attacks on the Lord. They were a political party of Jews who supported the Roman-backed Herodian dynasty. They weren't very religious. They were primarily political. They were the group out of which the zealots rose. They weren't like the Pharisees who cared about the issues of the law. They were those who buttered themselves up to Herod to pay taxes to make sure they were political insiders so they could have positions in the government. Political zealots, sympathetic probably theologically to the liberals, the Sadducees, who we'll see next week, doubted the resurrection. Now, the combination of the Pharisees with the Herodians shows the desperation of the Sanhedrin. These are the Democrats and the Republicans coming together. Uh, These are the Yankees and the Red Sox coming together. These are, are people that hated each other who are now conspiring with each other because they found a common enemy who was Jesus. There was something they could agree on, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Killing Jesus of Nazareth. Herod himself wanted Jesus dead. We find that out in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. And the Pharisees were already plotting to kill Jesus. John eleven fifty three 53 tells us that. So they joined efforts in a murderous plot and conspiracy. Luke tells us, by the way, of a very interesting interchange between Jesus and some of the Pharisees a few months earlier in Galilee. At this point, the Pharisees and the Herodians were on opposite ends. The Pharisees are still trying to confront and sort Jesus out religiously from the perspective of the law. But they actually wanted control over Jesus instead of the supporters of Herod. Listen to Luke chapter 13, verse 31. This was up in the north in in Galilee. Just at that time, some of the Pharisees approached saying to Jesus, go away from here, leave, for Herod wants to kill you. Strange protectors of the Lord. But they didn't want to protect him from Herod so that he wouldn't be killed by Herod. They wanted to keep him from Herod so they could destroy him. Listen to Jesus' response to the Pharisees. This is, this, is, uh, this is impressive. Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, I perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I reach my goal. In other words, you have no authority over me. You have no power over me. But it shows you that the Herodians and those who, who were faithful to, to Herod we're against Jesus. Listen to this. We, we study this back in Mark chapter 3. Mark 3 verse 1. Jesus entered again into the synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. It was a deformed hand. They were watching him to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. If so, they could accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up, come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful for Is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? They kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Mark chapter three, verse six. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus. 
as to how they might destroy him. So this alliance between the Herodians and the Pharisees goes back all the way to the north when Jesus was ministering around the Sea of Galilee. These enemies now became common friends against their common enemy, Jesus. So here's their setup in verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, it's just in, the, the, this, this drips with, with schmooze and hypocrisy. Teacher, a term of endearment, a term of respect. We know that you are truthful and defer to no one. You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. What a pile of compliments that were intended to manipulate and flatter. Then they say, is it lawful to pay a poll tax? When they say lawful, they mean, is it biblical? Is, this, is it before God? Okay. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax? By the way, that was a, a one denarius. It was the amount of a denarius. It was one day's wage that you, you, uh, began, you paid because you were a, a citizen of that area. If you go all the way back to to Caesar Augustus, when he created the census in the time of Jesus' birth, that's when this tax began began to press on those who lived in the Palestinian area. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? This is buttering up. This is flat-out manipulative flattery. But notice this. Isn't it interesting? That even though these men were attempting to flatter and manipulate the Lord, what they say about him and to him is actually true. Their assessment was powerful. Jesus is truthful. They said that about him, and indeed he was, claiming himself to be the truth in John 14. That Jesus would not be swayed by men. What did they know about the Lord? He wasn't able to be cajoled or manipulated. He wasn't going with the crowd. They were saying, you are a true, a genuine leader. What a characteristic of of leadership this is. They also say because Jesus was not partial to any. That's why he wouldn't be swayed by men. It literally means that he was no respecter of persons. Jesus paid attention to the smallest of child and the greatest of the rulers, as we've already seen in Mark. And then lastly, his teaching. He teaches the way of God and truth. You know, if, if you ever want a, a case study in spiritual leadership, those qualities that they assess to Jesus, they, they, they put on Jesus' resume, are the aspirations for anyone in spiritual leadership. Frankly, those are the aspirations for anyone who's a parent, anyone who wants to be a good friend, Truthful, not swayed by men, not partial to any, did not pay attention to men or their position, teaches in the way of God in truth. What a resume. And they actually were using the truth about Jesus to try to manipulate him and trap him into saying something that they could report him to the authorities about. Well, as they try their flattery and affirm his character and his authority, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. In verse 15, we'll find out that Jesus knew the insincerity of their hypocritical flattery. 
There's an old saying, gossip is what you do behind someone's back to harm them. Flattery is what you do to their face to inflict harm on them. This is flattery. Now they open the trap door of their scheme in verse 15. Shall we pay? Shall we not pay? They believe they have Jesus in a trap. They believe either way he answers, he's going to be in trouble with someone. He'll either incriminate himself with the Jews or incriminate himself with the Romans. Here's the dilemma. If Jesus says that the people should indeed pay taxes to Caesar or to Rome, he risks alienating the people as a Roman sympathizer. They hated Rome. If he is now behind and pushing, yes, taxation by Rome in this poll tax is something you should pay, he looks like he's a part of the Roman government. He actually sides with the Herodians. The would-be Messiah, the would-be deliverer from Roman oppression and taxation would never be a supporter of it. But on the other hand, if Jesus says that the people should not pay the tax to Rome, then he can immediately and instantly be reported to the Romans as a rebel and arrested as an insurrectionist. He's caught both ways. Now, amazingly, the genius of our Lord and what Mark shows us about Jesus is he sidesteps their trap And as he sidesteps their trap, they step in their own trap and are exposed as hypocrites. Back to verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy. Can we just pause right there for a moment? Knowing their hypocrisy. Quick note, Jesus is an expert at sniffing out hypocrisy. He has always been an expert at sniffing out hypocrisy. He is today in your life and in mine an expert in sniffing out our hypocrisy. He knows the sincerity in our hearts. He knows the flattery that can come from our hearts. He knows whether or not our worship is true and pure and simple devotion to him. He knows. Continuing on in verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to him, what is Jesus going to do? Knowing the trap they've set, understanding the hypocrisy in their heart, what is he going to do? Well, he says, why are you testing me? The word testing means trapping me. Why are you trying to entrap me? He exposes the very thing they're trying to do incognito. Why are you trying to trap me? you got to know that everyone around heard that. Bring me a coin. Bring me a denarius to look at. Again, a denarius was, was a coin that represented one day's wage. They didn't have you know, pennies and nickels and dimes and quarters and dollar bills and ten, five dollar bills. And they, they had just, just one main coin. And it represented one day's salary. It was a denarius. Jesus says, bring me a coin. Bring me one of those denarius. Their question was not an honest inquiry. These men were conscious liars. Foxes, as Jesus called Herod their leader. 
trying to trap him, trying to condemn him, trying to make him publicly guilty to be put to death. Now notice this. They confessed in their flattery that Jesus always spoke the truth. Well, guess what? Jesus actually speaks the truth about them. So there's, there seems to be a delay, a, a momentary delay between verse 15 and 16. They scuttle about, someone grabs someone's denarius, they bring it to Jesus. He holds that coin in his hand, probably between his first finger and his thumb, and he looks at that coin and he says to them, whose picture is this? Whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, you can look it up on Google, a a picture of a a first century denarius and a first century coin had the picture of Caesar Tiberius stamped on its front. The inscription said to Tiberius Caesar. And they said to him, they look at that and they, they knew the answer to the question. They said, well, Caesar's face is on the coin. Caesar's likeness. Caesar's image is on that denarius. Now, a little background here. This is important. Uh, there, there were 12 Caesars in the oversight of Rome who ruled the Roman Empire. Only two, however, are mentioned in the New Testament by name. The first was Caesar Augustus. You know Caesar Augustus very well from the Christmas story. Uh, He ruled from 27 BC to AD 14. He's the one who made the decree that a census be be sent out to all the the land and that you go to your hometown and register your your life, your, your earnings, where you lived, who you were, which made Mary and Joseph, who were far north in, in, in Nazareth, travel all the way down the 100 miles to Bethlehem to register their, their um, existence in that, that city. And as they registered their, their existence, who they were, and took part in the census, that actually fulfilled the prophecy in Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So Caesar Augustus is an unwitting player in the prophecy of God. The second Caesar mentioned by name in the Gospels, is Tiberius Caesar. He's first mentioned to mark the specific time in history when the word of God came to John the Baptist. Tiberius is mentioned on two other occasions, only by his title Caesar, but the context is very clear that it was Tiberius who was the Caesar at the time. There's no verse in the Bible that's more specific in its timing than this. And notice that Tiberius Caesar is only a marker for the ministry of the word of God. Just listen, Luke chapter 3, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, listen to all these descriptors, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the reason of Echeria and Trachonitis, And Licinius was the tetrarch of uh, Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. All of that data just to show the ministry of the word of God in John the Baptist. The king of the then known world is only a calendar marker in God's economy. 
The only importance that Caesar had as far as God was concerned was to mark the time when John the Baptist received the word of God. That's the only mention of Tiberius by name in the Gospels. He is, however, referred to as Caesar on two other occasions without being named. Both of these references are about paying taxes to the Roman government. The first is here in our text, and we'll see the other reference at Jesus, uh, with, with Jesus at his trial before Pilate in just a few minutes. Verse 17, that's the Caesar whose picture is on the coin, Tiberius. Jesus said to them, okay, you see his picture? You see his image? You see his likeness? Then render, and render is, render is such an interesting translation. Literally, it's pay what you owe. Oblige yourself. Render, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Stop right there. Again, a denarius had the image of Tiberius Caesar on it, just like our American quarter has. Right, kids, tell the, tell the folks in your, in your, uh, in your um, living room there, whose picture is on a quarter, a quarter dollar? Whose picture is it? George Washington, right. Just as George Washington's picture is on a quarter, this man, Tiberius, his picture was on the coin, the denarius. Jesus was saying that their use of the coin that bore the image of Tiberius proclaimed their obligation to the government it represented. Don't miss the point that Jesus is making, which still stands to this day. There is no conflict between honoring the government and honoring God. No conflict between honoring the government and honoring God. Just a little footnote as we find ourselves in this uh, COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. I have had several discussions with pastors around the country, actually around the world, who are having wonderful discussions with each other asking the question, well, if God tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which he does in Hebrews chapter 10, But the government tells us, don't assemble yourself together. It's a similar question as the one we're looking at here, isn't it? Who do we obey? Well, there's no conflict. If, just for an example, if the government were telling us, you cannot meet as a church because you're worshiping God, because you believe the gospel, because you're honoring Jesus Christ, friends, I think we would all be here and ready to go the prison. We would be served our arrest warrants with gladness. But that's not what's happening. We'll see in a moment that Romans 13 says the government governs for our good. The government is actually functioning for our good by asking us to exercise this, this safe distance. There's no conflict. We can honor the government and also do what we're doing in anticipation for when we can honor Hebrews chapter 10. Let's just face it, this is not assembling ourselves together, but it is a way that the sheep can be fed, that fellowship can happen at a more local level. There's no conflict between honoring the government and honoring God unless they tell you to do something that's specifically against the word of God. In fact, we honor God by honoring the government. 
Remember our, our very familiar passage in Romans 13? Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. God has established our government to put these measures in place right now that they're forcing us to stay at home. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not the cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. That's the description of government. A minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. We do what's right. Because, the, because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. You think Paul studied Jesus? Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It wasn't just Paul. Peter, the, the head of the band of disciples, wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what's right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Listen, if anyone ought to be honoring the stipulations of our government during this the stay-at-home order, it ought to be Christians who are having a good testimony that we obey. Act as free men, verse 16 says, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Jesus' message then, back to the Temple Mount, to the Sanhedrin and to us is simple. Honor the government, Honor the governors, i.e. the politicians, and pay your taxes. The only caveat to that is that if they tell us to do something unbiblical, of course we will resist. Acts chapter 5 says we'll obey God and not man in that category, but we've not yet been told, not, uh, told to do something that dishonors God's word during this pandemic. This is illustrated by the fact that the people used Money that bore the image of Tiberius. But there's far more to the idea of image bearing in the mind of the Lord here. And if you look carefully, you can see it. The first surprising implication of uh, image and ownership regards the government. The image on a coin and civic duties. Our coins bear the, our money bears the image of our leaders. We owe them taxation. We owe them honor. We owe them obedience. But number two, the image, the Imago Dei, rather, and divine obligation. The Imago Dei, the image of God, and divine obligation. As Jesus does so often, he answers their question, but he also answers a question that they didn't ask. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's 
And they weren't ready for this. Render, same verb, render to God, pay what you owe to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. They said, what do we do about paying Caesar? He says, pay your taxes. They didn't ask him about what they should do about what they owed God, but he tells them. And if you look carefully, the parallel is based on the fact that just as a coin bears the image of Tiberius, you bear the image of God. Therefore, you owe him your everything. Again, the word render means to pay what is owed. Jesus takes their inquiry about paying what is owed to the government and lets them know that there's something more that they owe. It may not look like it at first, but this is really about the Imago Dei, the image of God that every human bears. Now, let's do a little review. Let me explain. Genesis 1, verse 26 says, Let us, God said, let us make man in our image. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the, in the day when God created him, he made Adam in the likeness, the image of God. James, the half-brother of Jesus himself, referenced our being made in the image of God as a, as a reason to guard our speech. James 3, 9, with our tongues we bless the Lord and Father and With our tongues, we curse men who have been made in the image of God, the likeness of God. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed for the image, in the image of God he made them. So when we harm others and when we speak badly of others, we are actually going against the image of God stamped alive in every human. Well, again, what does this have to do with our passage? Jesus points to the image on a coin to show that taxes are due to the government because the coin bears his image. And by implication, he says that we render under God, we owe God our very lives because we bear the image of God just like that coin bears the image of Tiberius. What does it mean to bear the image of God? There, there are... There are books written on this. Our, our own, own uh, Owen Strand has written a, a recent book um, uh, on anthropology that talks extensively about the image of God. He's taught here in this pulpit about that before. But just a few reminders. As, as image bearers of God, we have consciences. We know right and wrong. We are distinct from the animal kingdom and the rest of creation. We have Guilt, we bear guilt. We have language, we can communicate, we can think, we can reason. We have an internal compass that points us to the very reality of God's existence and God's expectations. That's what Romans 1 tells us. We are uniquely male and female. We have immortal souls. Therefore, we owe God acknowledgement we owe God worship. Just as we owe then taxes to the government because we are citizens, we owe allegiance to God because we are creatures by his creation. 
Jesus was telling these men that they had an obligation to God and their duty to human government did not conflict with that. They were not rendering to God that which is God's. The very purposes in their heart that they were trying to entrap Jesus proves that. They had phrased their question on the assumption that these two duties to God and to others, to the government rather, were in conflict. But Jesus insisted that there was no necessary conflict between these two allegiances, nor is there today. And he implies that image bearing is the reason. Here's the Lord's point. Let me say it again. Because a coin bears Caesar's image, it should imply that citizens are obligated to him, short of sin, of course. And since humans bear the image of God, the Imago Dei, every person alive is obligated to give him what he deserves. And what is that? Our absolute allegiance in every dimension of life as regulated by his word. It was not either or. That's what they tried to trap him with. It was both and. Jesus informed them that they owed God duty that they must pay. They owed man and the government duty that they must pay. And it was clear that there was religious justification happening in this group to ignore both. That would be evident and their characterizing of Jesus at his trial. Now, let me ask a simple question. I just want to show you the nature of these enemies. Let's ask a simple question. In what we just read, in the full discussion, in full public, with everyone listening, did Jesus tell the Herodians and the Pharisees, do not pay your taxes? Did he say that? No, he didn't say that. He said just the opposite. Listen to what these same men, listen to what these same men accused Jesus of at his trial before Pilate. Listen to this false witness before Pilate. Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them, this is the people who, had just, who we just looked at, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, listen to this. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding the paying of taxes to Caesar. Can you believe that? And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He did say that. John adds in John 19, 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews kept crying out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. They were trying to get him in a position where the government would have to accuse him of treason and execute him. They lied. They lied about Jesus' own words, distorting him so they were not obligated to obey him. And before we're too quick to judge, let's remember that it's easy for you and me to spin the word of God, to spin it in a way that may justify us, get us off the hook for something sinful. There is no conflict between honoring God and honoring our government. 
if they tell us to sin, we should not bow the knee, we should not obey. But that's a very rare occurrence in our culture. I think this makes us back up and ask ourselves, do we really grasp the implications of being image bearers of God? The image of God is stamped on us. Therefore, he owns us. And we should render, pay what is owed him with our very lives and allegiance, submitting to his lordship, believing the good news of the gospel, taking his payment on the cross, Christ's death for our sin, understanding our sinfulness before God, thinking there's no hope is is not an option with the gospel. He gives us hope by redeeming us and offering us salvation, hope for now and eternity. You have never, never been beyond the reach of God's kindness and grace, ever. And you're not beyond the reach of his grace right now. Let me just beg you. This is a good morning, of all mornings, to stop and say, yes, I want, as an image bearer, I want to render to you what you are, you are due, what you deserve, which is me, my attention, my allegiance, my love, my submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ who died for my sin and rose from the grave. So we push away from this passage, and there's a lot here. What do we walk away with? What are the takeaways, as we call them? What are the implications for us? Very simple. First of all, let's remember that the resurrected Lord Jesus could and still can identify hypocrisy. He could and still can identify hypocrisy. I, I, I am... I am waylaid by the fact that the Lord sees straight through all of our hearts. He sees straight through my own heart and recognizes when I'm sincere and when I'm hypocritical, when I'm doing things for the eyes of men and when I'm doing things for his own pleasure. He is still a hypocrisy identifying God. Secondly, I think we need to remember there's no conflict for a believer to obey our governing authorities and obeying God. There's no conflict. We don't have to pick. And again, back to where we are right now. Honoring the government by not assembling together here is for our good because they're looking out for our, our care and our health. It's a temporary mandate. And we can honor that and honor God at the same time. We can also honor God by paying our taxes. Now listen, if the government gives us reason to, um, to not uh, pay every nuance of taxes and gives us allowances and deductions, there is Really good godly reason to take those deductions, those allowances. There is no justification, though, to say we will not pay our taxes. Thirdly, obeying government laws and regulations is prudent, but God is owed our very lives. Just as we owe the government our taxes, our obedience to traffic laws and civil laws and criminal laws, we also owe God our very existence to honor, know, and obey his laws. And fourthly, look at the end of verse 17. And they were amazed at him. Literally, they were overwhelmed. They were greatly marveling. They could not believe how Jesus answered. Verse 
Jesus is amazing, and he calls us to be amazed. Listen, friends, in this season where we have extra time at home, in this season where we can spend time with our families that is a little bit more than normal, let's take advantage of being amazed together at Jesus. As soon as I say that, though, let's remember also that some in the medical community are working extra hours, even more than they usually do. We need to remember them in prayer. But as God gives us the grace to do some considering, let's consider Jesus and be amazed. I trust this passage gives you plenty to talk about now as you gather yourselves around lunch. We are image bearers of God, just as a coin is an image bearer of the government, and it means allegiance. Let's be true to both.